All right, our reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 5, beginning at the first verse. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, He will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children with them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. My name's Carl. I'm the pastor of Trinity Church Only. It's lovely to be with you on such a a beautiful day outside. 
If you live each day as your last, someday you'll be right. In other words of Steve Jobs, he was a computer guru. But he was right in one sense, wasn't he? Because one thing is certain, we will all die one day. Steve Jobs, of course, wasn't the first person to discover this, was he? Uh, People like Christopher Bullock, Daniel Defoe, Benjamin Franklin, they're all reported to be the person who first came up with the saying, there's only two things certain in life, death and taxes. Death is a certainty, isn't it? And if there's one section, one thing, this section of Genesis wants us to know, it's this. Death awaits us all. And that's because... We live on the wrong side of the garden wall. If you were here with us last week, we talked about being on the wrong side of the garden wall. We're no longer in the Garden of Eden. And because of that, we're going to return to dust. might be 70 or 80 years. Some of us might even get to 100 years, but all of us will eventually die. And I think that's the big idea, at least in chapter 5 of what we looked at today. But before we kind of peel back the layers of chapters 5 and 6 of Genesis, there are some curly bits in this passage, aren't there? Some tricky questions. If you're new to this section of the Bible, if uh, it was the first time you've read it this morning, as Simon read it so well to us, there might have been some questions that jump out at you from this passage. Now, we don't normally do question time at the front of our service, but today I want to do something a bit different, and I want to hear from you What are the questions that jump out at you from this strange passage that we've just read? Yell them out. Any questions that you've got from this passage? Anything that you think is strange or uncertain in this passage? Where did he not go? Where did he not go? Yep, great. Anything else? The age. The age. They live so long, don't they? Anything else? Strange in this passage? Who are the Nephilim? Nephilim? Yeah. Any more? Who are the sons of God? Yeah, great questions to be asking. Strange things in this passage, aren't there? Here are the questions that I came up with. I think you've come up with all of them. How come everyone lives so long? Who are the Nephilim? And who are the sons of God? We're going to have a look at Enoch as well today. I want to do with you this morning is just spend a bit of time working our way through these, these tricky questions, these strange questions... I've got to be honest, I'm not going to be able to give you really good answers to those strange questions that we've just asked, but what I hope to do is to be able to give you some ideas and then put those things behind us so that we can move on to what I think is the big idea in this passage, the main thing. So you might end up a little unsatisfied as we deal with these questions, but hopefully by the end of the morning you'll have a really good idea about how chapters 5 and 6 of Genesis work. So let's start by taking a look at the long lives that these people live. It says, Adam lived 930 years, Seth 912, Enosh 905, Kenan 910, Mahalalil 895, Jared 962, and so on. Now, these guys are not just on a good wicket, but they're living like 10 or 12 times longer than we might expect to live today. So, what's going on? How can this be? Now, some people, when they read this section of Genesis, they think this just ruins the credibility of the Bible as a whole. How can people live so long? I wonder what you think. How, does these, how do these ages work? Let me give you some ideas about what other people have suggested. Some say that 
the way in which years were marked back when this was written or back when these people were lived. Were lived was different. So, so for example, they might say, instead of a year being marked by the time it takes for the earth to revolve around the sun, they might have marked a year by the time it takes for the moon to go around, like a, a lunar cycle rather than a, a sun cycle. Or perhaps they counted using a different number system. So there's some indication that some other ancient cultures, like the Sumerian culture, used base 6 in their counting rather than the base 10 that we use today. Maybe that would explain how we end up with such long lives that these people live. Kind of makes sense in a way, doesn't it? But here's a problem with that approach. We also have some information about the age these men were when they fathered their first child. And so if we just divide the long ages by 12 for, say, the lunar cycle, or we work out some other way of counting, then we'll find out that these, these men fathered children when they were, were very young, in fact, way too young to have children. So that doesn't seem like a good solution. Another way that people have dealt with this is they've said, well, maybe this is a way of representing that all these things happened like a long, long time ago in the distant, distant past. So other cultures have stories of ancient kings who reigned thousands and thousands of years and they kind of were written that way, they think, to make it feel like it was just a long, long, long way in the inconceivably distant past. I guess that's a possible idea about what might be going on here. Perhaps there's another way as well. Here's John Walton, let me read to you what he says. If we accept the biblical account at face value, that is that we accept that these people lived that long, there are reasons why they might have expected to live that long, given that they're in the shadow of Eden. Whether one would speculate that their long lives testify to the gradual penetration of sin and death, or the enduring effect of Adam and Eve's temporary pre-fall diet from the tree of life. The accuracy of these numbers can be defended. So there's three options for us to think through. Maybe there's something different about the time they lived in, being so close to Eden. Maybe the numbers were different. Or maybe there's a way in which this is symbolic, representing that they lived a long time in the past. I'm not sure that we can answer exactly what's happening in this, in this, with these questions. The next question that jumps out at this passage with us has to do with the sons of God. Who are they? What's going on with these guys, the sons of God? Well, the earliest view in the church was that the sons of God were angelic beings. They were angels. And you might be wondering, then, why isn't it just translated as writing angels? Well, the phrase, the sons of God, is kind of a literal translation of the, the way this was originally written. So how does it mean angelic beings then? Well, the same phrase is used just a couple of other times in the Bible. We see it in the book of Job. And in the context in Job, it's pretty clear that what's on view there is angels. And so many have suggested that what's on view here is angels. Sons of God are angels. However, people have questions like, how does that fit in with the flow of Genesis? How does that work with what's going on in this passage here? And so there have been other options put forward. Some think that the sons of, sons of God are from the line of Seth, people from the line of Seth. Or maybe that they were the rulers, the kings who lived at that particular time. Personally, I think the, the idea that these are descendants from the line of Seth is a fairly weak argument. And there have been no other instructions about intermarriage between, say, the lines of Seth and the lines of Cain. So it's difficult to see why this is offending God. 
Perhaps the idea that these sons of God are rulers or kings or part of royalty might make sense. Certainly, people are sometimes referred to in the Bible like they are sons of God, particularly if they are kings. So, King David is a particular example of this. Perhaps the offence here is that the kings were taking newly wedded wives for the first night of their marriage. I think there's room for you to choose for yourself what you think is the best interpretation of this question. For me, I'd probably lean towards the angel's approach, but again, I would stake my house on that. And the last question relates to the Nephilim. Who are they? Well, they're mentioned also in Numbers 13, verse 3, and they're associated there with the Anak. And in comparison, the Israelites are seen as grasshoppers. And so in the other words, it seems like the Nephilim are in one sense giants. The word itself means to fall. Perhaps that's a reference to them falling in prey on their enemy in battle. Or it could be that they themselves are fallen warriors who died in battle. But then again, the Bible doesn't tell us much more than that. And so we're left with some questions as to who these giants are and where they've gone today. Unsatisfactory answers, perhaps. But that's about as much as I can find about those curly questions that I think we come up with when we read this passage. I've tried to deal with it up front because I don't want it to distract, though, from what I think is the big idea in this passage. And that's what I want to turn our attention to now, try and put those curly questions behind us and to think about the big idea in this passage. But before we do that, I want to encourage you to find the text of this this passage. You might have it on a device. You might have it on one of the printouts that I've given you. You might have your own Bible here. If you've got the printout of it, what I would love you to do this morning is to open it up and have a look at it. Particularly if you've got a printout, that would be really great. Um, If you don't have a printout and you'd like some copies, there are some more out on the mahogany table, out in the hallway out there. Please feel free to grab the text of the Bible. And if you've got that text in front of you and a pen... I'd love you to do some marking up of that text with me just over the next minute or so. What I'd like you to do is find on that page, chapter 5, verse 1, and I'd like you to underline the following words. Find chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. You see that there in chapter 5, verse 1? This is the written account of Adam's family line. And then I'd love you to jump across to chapter 6 and look at verse 9 of chapter 6. And there I'd like you to underline these words. This is the account of Noah and his family. So two things to underline. This is the account of Adam and his family line, chapter 5, verse 1. And then in chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. And what you've just marked up, what you've just underlined here, is in a sense like the internal chapter markings of the book of Genesis. The next of these internal chapter markings you'll find in chapter 10 verse 1 if you've got the a3 page there you might just like to have a look at that chapter 10 verse 1 you'll see another one in chapter 11 verse 10 and then we don't have the text of this but 11 27 and so on and so on and so on throughout the book of genesis you find these internal chapter markers they call them toledots and they're all throughout the book of genesis and they're really helpful for us as we read through these through this book because they segregate the ideas of the text up into blocks or chapters. They're blocks of information that build the story of Genesis. 
The first of these Toledots tell us that God made everything. That's the creation story. We find it in chapter 1. The second block, the second Toledot, we actually looked at the end of that last week when we looked at the story of Cain and Abel. The second block tells us about the fall, about how sin entered into the world. And today we're in the third block, the third Toledot, and it's all about humanity. It's telling us what humans are like. See, this is the Toledot of Adam's family line. Another way to say that would be to say, this is the history of all mankind, because Adam is all of our common ancestor. So who are we? That, I think, is the question that's on view here. Who is humanity? What is it about us? I think there's two ideas, two answers that our writer has for us. The first is that everybody dies. And the second is that humanity has a great propensity towards sinfulness. Death, I think, is the big idea in chapter 5. Sin is the big idea in chapter 6. So let's start with chapter 5. Here is what the author of Genesis wants us to know. This side of the garden wall, so after the fall, this side of the garden wall, we all die. Look at it there in the text with me. If you've got your A3 page and your pen, I want you to have a look at verse 5. Adam died. Can you circle it if you've got a pen there? Circle, Adam died. And then have a look at verse 8. Seth died. Verse 11, Enoch died. Verse 14, Kenan died. Just circle them if you've got a pen there. And then go down to verse 17 and, and 20 and 27 and 31. You just see it repeated time and time again. They're all dying. As I read through this chapter, it kind of reminds me of the airport. I think hardly any of us have been to the airport this year, right? But if you can think back past 2020, back into 2019, when we used to go to the airport, you might remember at the airport those horizontal escalators. I don't know what they call them. I think they might call them travelators. You know, you step on one end of those travelators and they kind of carry you down 200 metres or so down to the other end of the terminal. And if you step at the, stand at the end of a travelator or whatever they're called and you kind of watch, it's like they spew people off the end, don't they? And it doesn't matter who you are, like kids, the elderly, holiday makers, business people, they all kind of spew off the end of the travelator. There's no stopping once you're on. Now, I know like some people on them, they kind of stand still, right? And you have to walk around them. And sometimes the kids get on and they try and run back the other way. But eventually on those travelators, you get to the end, don't you? It might be a depressing reality, but in a sense, we're on a travelator and we're all heading in the same direction. We're all heading towards death. It's not just us in this room, it's all of humanity. That, I think, is the, the, the big message of the first of these Toledots. Note to mankind, it might say, you're all going to die. Why? Why are we going to die? Well, this is a result of what happened in the second Toledot, in the curse. Back in chapter 3 of Genesis, the block that included the fall, we read this as part of the curse. It says this, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. But this is what life is like outside of the garden. We are all going to die. Oh, I think we all know that, right? It's not a surprise to any of you. But we do in some ways sometimes kind of trick ourselves. We try and put it out of our minds. We don't think about it. 
We're sheltered from it, in a sense, in our life today. I started training to be a pastor properly in 2012. Before that, I had never really been exposed or given much thought to death. And in one sense, I thought that was probably a good thing. I was training to be a minister. I worked as a chaplain in a major Melbourne hospital, and it was there as a 34-year-old. I'd lived 34 years as a 34-year-old before I saw death up front. It was the first time I saw a dead person, the first time I saw a person die, the first time I really sat with people who had recently lost loved ones. Because we're good at sheltering ourselves from it in this world. The writer of Genesis wants us to know we're all going to die. To some of us, death is not something we can ignore, though. It's the ultimate reminder as well, isn't it, that something is not right in our world. That our world is broken and that our world is cursed. Because of who we are, God has limited our time in this world. We might be able to hide from it, we might be able to sanitize it and ignore it, but but here's the reality. We're all going to die. Today I want to acknowledge that some of us know this all too well. You might have had a health scare recently, or perhaps someone who you, you love is not well at the moment. Maybe you've had to recently say goodbye to someone. And the reality is that it's terribly painful death. I have a few photos of my maternal grandfather on my computer and every now and again for some reason you know, they have those memories that come up. Every now and again a photo of my maternal grandfather comes up. When I've been a pastor for about six months my grandfather died. His funeral was the first funeral that I ever took. He lived in New Zealand. I didn't see him all that often but he played a big part in my life and I still miss him. Death hurts, doesn't it? Genesis wants us to see that as descendants of Adam and Eve, we all one day will die. And yet, there's an exception in this passage. I wonder if you noticed that, as Simon read it to us before, the exception is to do with Enoch, the son of Jared. We read about him in verses 18 of chapter 5. If you've got your print out there, let me read that to you now. When Jared lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters altogether. Jared lived 962 years, and here's the pattern, and then he died. Jared follows the pattern that we've seen before, but here's the change, here's the exception. We see it in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. So of all, the, all those who came before him and those after, we, we know pretty much nothing about those men except their name, the age they had their first child and the age they were when they died. But Enoch is different. Enoch walked faithfully with God, we're told. I don't think it's a coincidence either that the same phrase is used of, of Noah. And here it's used to describe Enoch twice. I think there's a, a ray of hope here in this chapter in the exception of Enoch. The whole of humanity is on a travel ladder towards death, but somehow, by walking faithfully with God, Enoch somehow stepped off that travel ladder early. 
We don't know that much about Enoch from Genesis, though, do we? On the screen behind me, though, I have a section of text from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Let me read to you what it says there, because it's a delight. It says this, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as someone who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If Genesis leaves any doubt about what's going on with Enoch, I think it's kind of explained here in Hebrews, right? He's stepping off the travelator because he pleased God. Genesis doesn't tell us where Enoch goes, but he pleased God. And so in the context of Hebrews, I think it makes sense to see that he was taken to heaven. Why? Because he pleased God. His faithfulness was part of that. He believed in God and he sought him earnestly. So walking faithfully with God, is that the solution to the travelator that's taking us towards death? Is that how we get off the travelator? Well, it certainly seems like that's something that's happening in Genesis. But here's a problem for us. Who of us can walk that way? You might think, I'm not like Enoch. My walk is crooked. Can't walk faithfully all the time. Well, let's move on and have a look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, it's part of the same block of text, part of the same toledot. It's in a separate chapter, but part of the same section that our author wants us to consider. Let me read to you from verse 5 of chapter 6. It says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Remember this section of Genesis, it's about mankind, about humanity. This is our story. It's a bit of a rough story, isn't it? Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And it tells us that humanity grieved God and it troubled him and so he acted. He vows to wipe all of humanity from the face of the earth. And we're going to look at that a bit more over the next couple of weeks. But in this block of text, so far what we've seen is people heading towards death and that they're becoming increasingly sinful to the point where God says their hearts are evil all the time. What I want you to see is though, just like Enoch was the exception to death, so Noah is the exception to having a sinful heart. And just like Enoch, he too is a man, Noah that is, who walked faithfully with God. Next week we're going to look at the start of the story about the flood, but in our remaining time this morning, I just want us to think about what it means to walk faithfully with God and how that affects us today. See, walking faithfully with God, it's a big idea in the book of Genesis. Later on in Genesis chapter 17, God speaks to a man called Abram and he says this, he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless, then, then I will make my covenant between me and you and I will greatly increase your numbers. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. So Abram, like Enoch and like Noah... Walk faithfully and be blameless. But here's my question for us today. Who can do that? 
Doesn't it seem like an impossible task for us? Walk faithfully before God and be blameless? The writer in Genesis just saw that every inclination of the human heart was sinful all the time and that we're heading towards death. Who can walk faithfully and blamelessly? Perhaps this year you've felt that more than in other years. Maybe the frustration and the uncertainty of COVID and what that's mean for us has meant that the sin which was crouching at your door that we talked about last week, you've really felt that this year. Maybe this year it's jumped up and really grabbed you by the shoulders. So perhaps you're wondering, how can we walk faithfully and blamelessly with God? I wonder what your year's been like. I wonder how you feel about this idea of walking faithfully and blamelessly with God. Well, today we live on the other side of the cross, don't we? We live on the same side of the garden, but the other side of the cross. And today we have the New Testament. And I want you to come with me to Colossians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible text in front of you, I don't have it on your printout, but I will have it on the screen behind me. Now, I've got the ESV translation on the screen behind me for Colossians chapter 2. And I do that because the language of the ESV makes sense of what's going on in Genesis. This is what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Can you see the connection here in Colossians to Genesis? Walk in Jesus. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Noah walked faithfully with God. Abraham was told, walk faithfully. Who can do this though? Here we are in the New Testament being encouraged not to walk with, but in Jesus. Wouldn't you see it's almost like Jesus is wearing an extra large pair of clown shoes or something like that. And we can kind of slip into the shoes while he's still standing in them and walk with him. Well, sometimes my kids do this game with me where they come up and they they say, hold my hands, Dad. And I hold their hands and they put their feet on the top of my feet and then they say, walk. And we kind of walk together, the kids standing on my feet. This is the picture I think Paul wants us to have here when we read Colossians. See, we are to walk in Jesus, connected to him. And when we're connected with Jesus like that, our walk becomes his walk, or maybe his walk becomes our walk, and then we'll walk faithfully and blamelessly, not because being connected to Jesus makes us perfect. No, sin is still crouching at our door. It's a battle we all face but not for Jesus. He is perfect. And we're encouraged to walk in him, which makes our walk blameless also. Because we're in union with him. The passage we've looked at today in Genesis shows us two big problems with humanity, death and sin. And I hope that the Spirit of God is at work in us that we'll be transformed in our lifetimes to become more like Jesus and consequently that our walk would be more like His. That we'll become less sinful as we become more like Jesus. But the inevitability of it is that we still mess up. We still get things wrong. But this is how grace works. Jesus has dealt with our sin in order that we might have life. Let me keep reading from the book of Colossians. It says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 
But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Friends, you see, here is the solution to the problem of sin and the problem of the human heart that we saw in Genesis. Through his death, Jesus' death, through the breaking of his physical body, Jesus has reconciled us and made us holy in God's sight. In Genesis, God looks at the human heart and all he sees is sin. Here's the result of walking in Jesus, when God looks at your heart, what he sees is holiness. What he sees is you without blemish and free from accusation. Do you believe that? That's what it tells us in Colossians. Jesus has presented us holy in God's sight. This is the core of the gospel message, isn't it, as it relates to us. On our own, we're not any better than those old guys like Lamech or Jared or any of the old guys who live so long. But because we walk in step with Jesus today, because we're in him, he's rescued us. It's not cheap grace either, though. Did you see that? We're to continue in our faith. We're not to move from the hope held out for us in the gospel. But that hope is there for us in Jesus. Genesis tells us what humanity is like. It tells us that we're on that travelator, moving in a certain direction, moving towards death. It tells us that we're all sinful. The rest of the story of the Bible helps us to see the solution. In Colossians, we see that the solution is in Jesus, to walk with him. Not that we're perfect, but we can walk in him. We've started with a lot of questions today. Let me leave you with a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe we can walk in Jesus and that God will see us as holy? Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you thanks. The book of Genesis helps us to see what we are like as people. And so we turn our attention to you and we praise you. We say sorry to you. But at the same time, we fall on our knees in prayer to you, praising you for what you've done for us. that you provided a solution to our sinfulness. We give you thanks for Jesus' death on the cross and that when by walking in him you see us as blameless and free from accusation. Amen.